It's good to have you today with us at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley. Hope everybody uh, had, a, had a nice drive in in the beautiful sunny Father's Day weather that the Lord has given us today. I want to begin by giving you a statement, having you think about it. Uh, the layout of a house can tell you a lot about a person. Uh, Julie and I moved from Olathe to Leewood seven years ago to a house whose previous owners had lived there for 25 of the house's then 38 years, and you could tell when you walked in they'd never had children. Uh, all of the emphasis in the space was given to places where they, as owners, would uh, stay, and, and there was literally nothing in the house that would communicate that they ever had grandchildren or expected to have grandchildren visit. Everything about the house indicated that it had been occupied for years by a mature adult couple. A few weeks ago, Julie and I moved into a new house just barely across the state line, so I now live in Missouri, and it kills me. It kills me. I'm telling you, I'm a conscientious Kansas objector living in Missouri. And, and were you to walk through our, our house without knowing us, you'd be able to tell really quickly we're empty nesters. Now, almost all of the surfaces are white. That doesn't fly if you've got toddlers at home. The master's on the main floor so that Pops and Mimi can avoid stairs uh, if necessary. But if you visited the basement living area, you'd probably guess by the lay of things that we do have children who come to visit, two good-sized bedrooms downstairs. And if you open the cabinets, you'd see toys ready for the grandchildren to come visit. The layout of a house can tell you a lot about a person. And that's what the text we come to in Exodus is all about today. So if you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25 in your copy of God's Word. As I've said before, the part of Exodus that we are in is the reef upon which many well-intentioned read through the Bible in a year journeys have shipwrecked. I'm under the impression as a pastor that lots of people, lots of people have read from Genesis 1 to about right here in God's Word, but not many of us have made it much beyond that. So my goal is to attempt to kind of close the cultural gap today between our day and the time about which we're reading, kind of take away some of the intimidation factor in it, and help us all see that these chapters are simply giving instructions about the design of God's house. Now, of course, God doesn't actually live in a house like you and I live in a house. Even the Bible says so. In his dying speech, the New Testament martyr named Stephen quotes the Old Testament and says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. He goes on to say, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? And yet, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Build me a house. So, what gives? Does the Bible contradict God, or does God in some way contradict himself? Well, neither, of course. But you will routinely see God doing what theologians call condescending himself in the Bible to make himself more accessible 
and more understandable to people like you and me. And what better way to teach people about you than to say, build me a house this way. And here's the interesting thing about the house, variously called a sanctuary or a tent in the Bible. It was actually meant to depict the throne room of heaven, which if you'll remember, Moses and the elders caught kind of a glimpse of when they were called onto the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given and invited to eat a meal in God's presence. That's why the author of Hebrews and Hebrews 8.5 says they, and he's speaking of the house and the furnishing and all of the things that we're going to read about today, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the author of Hebrews says, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So while God doesn't actually live in the house that the Jews will construct, it does give them a taste of what the experience of heaven and being in his presence will be like. And again, like everything, uh, the design detailed in Exodus 25, 27 is meant to teach the Jews more about who God was. So let's just kind of summarize the building that they built at his instruction. And the first design detail that we are given in this section of Scripture was about Indiana Jones's favorite artifact, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, the movie kind of gets it right. Uh, what you see in the movie is an accurate description of what we see in Exodus chapter 25, even right down to the size. But what you might not get from the movie is that the ark itself is just the bottom part of it. There is a lid on top of it that Exodus 25 calls the mercy seat. And the whole thing together was actually meant to depict the throne, probably more accurately the footstool of the throne with the angels bowing before the Lord who uh, was said to hover above it. So in that sense, it is helpful to think of the tabernacle of God's house as what the Celtic saints called a thin place. What's a thin place? A thin place was uh, a place where the barrier between the mortal world and heaven seemed to be thin. The ark was the visible footstool of the invisible God who sat upon it. And that kind of helps us make sense of the next things described in this section. The next things described are a table and a lampstand. And this is to vastly oversimplify what they represent, but it does communicate. It was, it was there to make things more homey. The idea being that a tabernacle was a place to fellowship with God. Now, the portion that tends to make eyes glaze over when we read uh, this section of Scripture is found in the bulk of Exodus chapter 26, where we get the dimensions and construction of the tent itself. I like how one writer uh, describes its purpose. This is what he said. He said, The tabernacle was a fancy rectangular tent in which God lived symbolically in the presence of his people. After being built, it was set up in the middle of the entire Israelite encampment so that all the individual small, simple Israelite tents surrounded the one big fancy tent belonging to God. 
And when he led them in traveling or in going to war, he went out in front of them in the form of his angel or the pillar of cloud and fire. But when they encamped, his home was in the very center of their homes surrounding his. So I like that description. It helps us get why it was arranged in such a way. And the tent had three main areas. The biggest was this open courtyard where the bronze altar described in Exodus 27 in detail is described. This was the altar where, obviously, sacrifices were made. And then you went to a smaller enclosed area where what we'll call the household items were kept, that table and the lamp, uh, which, by the way, was meant to be uh, lighted continually according to the last part of Exodus 27. And the innermost, smallest chamber of the tent was where the ark resided and therefore represented where God sat on his throne. Now, I hope you see this pattern. You have this open courtyard where the sacrifices took place to atone for sin and to remove separation from God, which makes it possible then to have fellowship with God and to experience his presence. So think of the arrangement of the tent in this way. Sacrifice, fellowship, intimacy. Sacrifice, fellowship, intimacy. God's house was designed to teach that pattern. So that's the overview. That's the flyover of the section of Scripture that honestly you've skimmed or page flipped your way through when you're reading God's Word. It's the section of Scripture where God gives Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle which the people would use then to meet with him. But, and, and here's what I am super anxious for us all to grasp this morning, it's a section of Scripture that shows us, listen, that God desires to dwell with his people. The house where Julie and I live, shows that we want to dwell with our people, really just have them visit for a little bit, but you get my idea. The only reason that a couple in their mid to late 50s have a house with more than one bedroom is because they are expressing a desire to fellowship with those who are important to them. And the only reason that God who can't be contained by our imaginations, much less a building, would give instructions for a house was if he were passionate to dwell and fellowship with his people, which is not how many of us conceive of God at all. For all of the borderline grotesque and blasphemous casualness that modern followers of Jesus voiced on God at times, he actually does want a relationship with us that is more than just a transactional, here's forgiveness so you don't have to go to hell kind of thing. And this three-chapter section of Exodus proves that to us. We began by saying that a house says a lot about the person living in it. So what does God's house teach us about Him? You will not be surprised that I think it teaches us three things. I'm a, I love Aristotle. He said, keep it to threes. That's what I'm doing. So here we go. It teaches us first that God dwells with his people in a personal way. 
If you've ever been to my office at the annex across the street, you know it has two rooms. There's this outer room that I really only use for doing pastoral work. That's where I counsel. It's where I meet with people that want to set up a meeting. It's where I do membership interviews and such. It's pretty formal, and it's businesslike. But I spend most of my time when I work at the annex in a smaller room in the office. It's much less formal adorned with some personal items and a few books. If you visited me during the day, you'd see that ESPN is playing quietly in the background on a TV. And before anyone gets going, it's on a service that I pay for and a TV that was doing nothing around the church. The church does not buy me cable or has purchased me a TV. I want to shut down lunchtime conversations. (laughs) But it's in that room where I answer emails and write blog posts for Instagram and plan and and do some reading. And a few years ago, I moved a guest chair in there because the staff had taken to calling that little room the Holy of Holies. And uh, it had begun to be perceived as being off limits to basically anyone but Pastor John. And, And so I wanted to change that. So I put a chair in there. And now if the staff wants to stop by, I invite them to take a seat. I've got a place for them to sit. I am trying to communicate that I want a personal relationship with our staff, not just a business relationship, provided they don't stay too long and bug me. The chair's not that comfortable. (laughs) But the point is that I'm arranging my office to show that I want to enjoy the staff in a personal way. And God has arranged His house to show that He desires to dwell with His people in a personal way. I want you to think of it. A table with bread always at the ready and a lamp that is always lighted isn't there because God gets hungry and has trouble seeing in the dark. It is there to communicate that he wants to be with his people in a way that is commonly accepted universally, a meal. God desires to dwell with his people in a personal way. That's the first thing this design teaches us. But the second thing this design teaches us is that God desires to dwell with his people in a provisional way. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that he has, in this house, provided a way for people to have fellowship with him. And I'm I'm not thinking about the house itself as much as I'm thinking about what resides in that outer court, an altar. Our understanding of an altar for sacrifices uh, really tends to be too one-dimensional. We tend to think of it as only a place where sacrifice and atonement for sin is made. And that's obviously a key purpose of an altar of sacrifice, but it's only one of two key purposes. I want you to look at how it's described in admittedly a a section of Scripture that could cause our eyes to glaze over, but hang with me and I want you to try to picture what is being described here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, 
and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils bronze. And you shall make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. And you shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Everybody's life passage of Scripture right there, correct? But if you were able to track with me, I want you to think about what it pictured. Think with me what a hollow bronze square with a fire pan below and a bronze net on top looks like. It looks like, I'm not kidding, a really fancy Weber grill. And why? Well, because as we'll learn when we spend a few weeks in Leviticus at the end of the summer, some sacrifices were meant to be eaten with God. The animal would be sacrificed, the blood poured out as atonement for sin, and as we'll see at the end of July and through August, the best parts of the meat were then incinerated on the fire, symbolizing them going up to God, and the rest were given, the edible parts were given to the offerer to eat, symbolizing a meal with God. And the meal itself had a special significance in the ancient world when an agreement between two parties had been made, when a covenant had been made, it was sealed with a meal between two parties. That's what we saw in the passage of Scripture last week. God called the leaders of Israel up to seal the deal, as it were, by having a covenant meal with them. And the purpose of this meal was to renew the relationship that the worshiper had with God. So the altar does provide a means for sin to be atoned for, a substitutionary sacrifice, but it also provided for the worshiper the opportunity to have a continual fellowship and relationship with God symbolized with a meal with Him. God made sure to provide this space where that could be experienced. Now, the final thing that this Scripture shows us is that God dwells with His people not just in a personal way and in a provisional way, but in a particular way. Our staff and lay leadership knows that I have such raging ADD that you can just about assume that if you've sent me an email that is longer than a short paragraph without bullet points, I have not read it. The details generally are lost on me. It's wasted effort. Just ask my wife. And so, like you, I'm easily swamped by the details of all of this that we read in Exodus. I mean, just listen to how uh, chapter 26 opens. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubims skillfully 
worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be of the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain. Fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasp so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. My lips vibrated even trying to track reading that. I mean, there's so much detail, so much detail. And that's just how it starts. Chapter 26 is filled with incredible detail, and, and it extends to the description of the priestly garments, what they were to wear in the passage that we'll spend some time with next week. So it's not wrong to ask. I mean, I get why they needed it. They were building it. But why did God preserve it for me? I mean, why do, why do I have that in my Bible? And here's the deadly, serious reason. We do not come to God haphazardly or on our own terms. There are two stark examples of that in the first five books of the Bible. One is when the people attempt to depict God in the image of a golden calf in Exodus 32. You need to understand, and we will when we get there, that the people don't create a new God. They just envision God as this. We can, we can dictate the terms of how we view God. And then the second time is when Aaron's sons cut some corners and how they make an offering to the Lord. Listen, in both of those instances, people died. And the lesson, we don't come to God on our own terms and haphazardly. God gave the details as, as a way of measuring how seriously people took an encounter with Him. Now, it's going to feel like I'm about to make a hard right turn, but hang with me. The band Van Halen <laughs> famously asked for M&Ms in a bowl in their green room before a show with all of the brown ones removed. The band's concert writer had a clause in it that said there could be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area or the promoter would forfeit the entire show at full price. But it's not a ridiculous demand by a band too big for their britches. At least it mostly isn't. <laughs> it was actually a visual cue by which the band could tell quickly whether the writer, the contract, had been read thoroughly by the promoter. So if you'll permit me, the details about the loops and the curtains and the embroidery are provided for somewhat the same reason. Were the people winging it with God, taking Him for granted, just coming to them how they felt they should in the moment? Or were they sober-minded and serious about offering to God all that He demanded? And so that's the summary of God's house provided in Exodus 25 through 27, offered in the hopes Hopes 
that you'll read it on your own over these next few days and do so remembering that it shows us that God longs to dwell with His people personally and, and provisionally and particularly. But more than anything else, I pray that it shows you this. God passionately desires to dwell with His people. He didn't need Israel. For that matter, it could have easily been any other group of people. But He set His affections on this little nomadic family headed by Abraham and said, I'm going to show my glory through them. And I'm going to give my heart to them. And so, of course, he set up a way for them to experience him to the fullest extent that mortal man can. God is passionate to be with his people. And he still is. Earlier, I read from the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I showed how the tabernacle was patterned after the vision that Moses and the leaders of Israel saw when they had a covenant meal with God on the Ten Commandments mountain. But his purpose in saying that in Hebrews was to show that it actually foreshadowed something more wondrous. The preeminent evidence that God is passionate to dwell with his people. And that evidence is Jesus. I want you to listen to Hebrews 8. 6 through 12. The author says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So he's introducing the idea that all of this is ultimately pointing to something not just better, but perfect in Jesus. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second. But then then he quotes the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah calling the people of Israel to look for a greater fulfillment. Quoting from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, the day we're reading about, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. They just continually tried to come to God on their own and on their own terms, and God eventually uh, cast them out of the, the promised land and into Babylonian captivity. Continuing to quote Jeremiah, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Here's what the people of Israel got wrong time and time again. They thought having a relationship with God meant only that you had to change how you acted. How many times have we seen that in our own lives? How many many times do we see that in church life in America and around the world? 
In order to have a relationship with God, I've got to change how I act. But the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, quoted by the anonymous author of Hebrews, says there's going to come a day when you're going to figure out that God doesn't want to change how you act. He wants to change who you are. And he will write, he will write knowledge of himself on our hearts to the point that we don't have to explain God to anybody anymore. And our lives become vehicles through which God lives his life. And that day that Jeremiah was calling his listeners to look forward to was the day when, according to the New Testament writer John, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And the, the word in John's language literally is tented, tabernacled among us. What is John saying in John chapter 1 in a passage of Scripture we only read at Christmas? He is saying that this tent where God shows that he wants to dwell with people personally and provisionally and particularly was fulfilled in the flesh of Jesus, proving once and for all that God is passionate to dwell with his people. He does not want to change how you act. He doesn't want to be transactional with you, say, I will give you reluctantly forgiveness so that you can be in heaven someday. He is saying, I will go to the ends of myself to provide for you a way to me that will never close. And that is why Exodus 25, 27 is in your copy of God's Word. It's to call your attention to a manger in Bethlehem and a life lived in Galilee and a death outside of Jerusalem and a resurrection a few days later, demonstrating once and for all that God wants you and not how you act. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you're here today laboring under the notion that all God has wanted is some really kind of peculiar activity from you. And you're missing that he wants you. I hope that something that we have said today has flicked the light on for you. And if it has, I want you to know that that God who long ago showed that he was passionate to be with his people has made it possible for you to be with him forever through Jesus. Will a relationship with Jesus fundamentally change how we act? Yes, but it's because his life will, be start, will start to be lived out through us. But let's not get it out of order. What he wants is us. What he wants is to change who we are in Christ and then build out of us a life that reflects him and his glory. If today... You are being released from the bondage of religious performance and awakening to the idea that God wants you 
and has provided a way for you to be with him through Jesus, when we are done, I want you to seek out Pastor Jonathan, one of the other pastors, one of the elders, somebody on your pew. Normally I would be available. You can probably tell I'm under the weather and I don't want anybody to uh, take home a souvenir. But if you today want to give your life to Jesus, we want to, we want to talk to you about how to do just that.